When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Who is it that you want? Here Jesus is wanted not because he is revered, not because he is worshipped, but he is wanted because they want him dead. The religious leaders and authorities were not happy with what Jesus was doing. He was challenging their authority, their faith, and their very identity. Yet here we know that Jesus is to be arrested and killed so that others can be who they were meant to be. He was to give of himself so that others can be. And this incident happens within the garden. In the Garden of Eden, God searched for Adam and Eve. And here in another garden, Jesus is sought out by people who are ready to kill him. The garden is important here because for John, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus, like in the Garden of Eden, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as the new Adam, is arrested. The garden where Jesus prayed and asked his father, not my will, but for your will to be done. He had already come to terms with his mission and call, and so he answers with the phrase, I am he. The Greek word here is ego emi, which means I am. Out of the four Gospels, John's Gospel has the phrase ego emi more than any other of the other Gospels. And so we hear the classic sayings of I am. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. What I was drawn, in, drawn to in this passage is that here again, Jesus responds to who he is by saying, I am. This I am isn't just a response to I am he, I am the one you're looking for, but rather John makes the connection of Jesus to Yahweh, the I am who I am, the great I am, and which we know from the story of Moses. The arresting party hears this I am and, and falls back to the ground. As one commentator put it, the mere uttering of the name creates a revelation which leaves the arresting party prostrate before God. 
So it is this great I am, Jesus, who is on his way to the cross. The great I am is emptying himself so that others can be who they are. The great I am becomes the great I'm not so that others can be. So the question that I want us to reflect on is how does Jesus want us to empty ourselves so that others can be their true selves? How can we join Jesus in his self-emptying journey to the cross so that others may find Christ, the great I am? The Jesus, the great I am, is so secure in who he is that he can actively give himself away to others. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were threatened by Jesus of who they were and therefore crucified Jesus for it. How can we be secure in who we are so that we can also give ourselves away to others? And perhaps another question we need to ask ourselves is how do we stifle Jesus in our lives when he comes to us and demands all of us? Jesus, we are because you are. We are able to give ourselves to others because the one who makes us us has given away himself to us. Amen. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he'd been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not 
not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again. No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Then take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus has said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? With this, Pilate went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. I was familiar with the practice of fasting growing up in the church, but it was not something that I ever practiced. It was something that happened in the Bible, and some Christians did over Lent. I thought that fasting was giving up food for a length of time, and in that sacrifice, God would meet the the person, and they would have a miraculous encounter. I learned later on that it was so much more than just giving up something It was the intentional time you gave God in the midst of fasting. Our lives are full. We have so much coming at us all the time. And technology has only compounded that. Spiritual practices like fasting allow us to make intentional space for our friendship with Jesus. I picture Jesus sitting on the couch next to me and ask, and we talk with each other like we were friends. After all, that is what I do with all of my friends. Earlier this year, I I did a two-day silent retreat over a weekend. Oddly enough, I didn't realize that being silent for that time was an act of fasting. 
In reflection, the silence was the most difficult and powerful aspect of the two days for me. I learned so much about myself and God in the silence. As I prepared for the retreat, I thought that one of two things would happen. I would see visions and hear God clearly, and my questions would be answered, and I would know where I was going in my future. Or God would be silent, and I'd spend 48 hours with nothing to show for it. Looking back, I was giving God a list of things I wanted him to do for me since I was being so godly over those 48 hours. I didn't enter my retreat inviting God as a friend. God is gracious with me, and he did meet me, but I had a lot to learn in the process. Being silent for 48 hours wasn't what made me nervous. As an introvert, there have been weekends where I don't speak to anyone, so being intentionally silent wouldn't be that difficult. I put my phone on Do Not Disturb, I put away my remotes, and quietly said goodbye to the worship music. And so I began my retreat. It didn't take me long to realize this was going to be more difficult than I thought. The first half of the retreat was painfully boring. I was going through the motions. I prayed, meditated, journaled, but all these things fell flat. I was plowing through what I thought were retreat-worthy practices all before noon. There were still so many hours to go. I didn't feel the Holy Spirit in any of it. As the frustration grew, I decided I needed to go for a walk in the woods. Nature always calmed me and brought me closer to God. It was at this point in my retreat that I hit the wall. It was the worst walk ever. There was no solace in the walk. My frustration didn't melt away, and I didn't see God in the nature around me. I remember praying my frustration while walking. As I prayed, the words, I am so alone, flowed out, and I was weighed down by this. This is when I hit the wall. I realized I wasn't frustrated with the silence around me, but I was frustrated because God had been silent this whole time. I had no idea that once I started the retreat, God would... I had this idea that once I started the retreat, God would be there. We'd be in harmony and the conversation would flow. But I was met with utter silence. Once I thought through those words, the loneliness flooded me and I, was just, and I just wanted to turn around and head straight for my friend's place and be in their presence so I wouldn't feel so alone. I had to make a decision at this point. Either keep going on the retreat or give up. I went home and went to my meeting with my spiritual director and shared my frustration. Her questions and understanding gave me the motivation to keep going. This was my turning point. As I reflect on my retreat, I came to understand that it wasn't until the second half that my focus moved from what I expected of God to just being present with him. It took the first half of the retreat for me to relinquish control of how and what God was doing in the time I set for him. I may have quieted the world around me, but I had not quieted myself. The reality was my mind and heart were not ready to listen. I pushed through the wall and was fully present. Part of the control I was clinging to was the idea of what I thought dictated a good retreat. 
I had to let go of the idea that there was a right way and acknowledge that God can speak to me in many ways. The Holy Spirit is not limited by a certain structure. He is creative and thinks outside the box. What is limiting is when I only listen in certain ways. At the beginning of my retreat, I went to what I thought were the expected ways God would communicate. In silent prayer, meditation, journaling, these are all ways he had spoken to me before, but this time he went a different route. In the morning, I had picked up a novel. I wanted to read it and thought it would be good, but I promptly put it down because reading fiction cannot be part of a spiritual practice. What would God think of me if I allowed such a thing to distract me from our time together? After I spoke with the spiritual director, she had encouraged me to be open to many ways God will reach out to us. So I picked up the book and began reading. I didn't stop until I was finished. God met me in this book. It was about relationship and the connections we have with each other. It spoke to my soul. I connected to the words on such a deep level. God didn't give me direction or, or help me plan my future. He was just present, and we had precious time together. I am so grateful that I pushed through and continued on the retreat. I realized that I needed that. I needed to turn off society, to quiet the world around me, and quiet myself. This space allowed me to just be with God. I also think God has a sense of humor. I've always felt that an aspect of deep friendship was where you could be both in the same space together, but not needing to always be in conversation. We could each be reading a book and be at peace. That's exactly what God and I did during my retreat. He used my love of fiction to share with me and my idea of deep friendship to show me we could have that too. I did have my own challenges while fasting, but the struggle was an important part for me. And after I got through it, the time I had with God was precious. I realized that I need to have a routine of adding silence to my life, to quiet myself and just be with God, leaving all expectations and control aside. I figure the more I practice this, the fasting I will, the more I practice this, the f I will quiet myself and enter into a deep time with God. And with that, I will begin to expand my images of him and how he is present in my life. I am confident that God will always meet us and be present with us, even if he is silent in that time. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and threw a purple robe around him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple police saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, 
for I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law he must die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, You're not talking to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's bench in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about six in the morning. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So then, because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, the mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that now was all, that was all, it was all finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day, the Jews asked Pilate that they might, that their legs might be broken and they, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the spirit might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Every now and then, I decide to go down the Facebook rabbit hole. I'm reminded of someone I know and have lost touch with, and I look them up. A few years ago, I became curious about someone I had gone to high school with, but hadn't heard from in a while. We hadn't been friends, but we had been friendly. And I was wondering what she was up to. So I looked her up. And I was surprised as I came to her page and found it to be full of memorial messages. Messages saying rest in peace and pictures from times when she was younger. She had had a heart condition that she managed to live with, but something went wrong. And when she was 27, she was admitted to the hospital and then died. I was scrolling down her page and looking for the last thing she had posted. And one of her last messages was an appeal for someone to bring her a drink. Can you bring me a drink? This is my hospital room. I'm thirsty, she wrote. And as I read this, the tragedy of her death struck me. Not just that she had died so young, but that in her final moments in a hospital bed, there was no one with her to bring her a drink. In our reading from John, we saw Jesus say those same words. I am thirsty. Jesus, who is fully God, in that moment fully embodies his humanity. For what reminds us more of our own humanity than our own thirst? In the Bible, thirst is used as a synonym for longing and for wanting. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus quenching people's thirst. 
His first miracle is to turn water into wine, meeting that longing of people to celebrate and to experience pleasure. He then meets a woman at a well and promises to quench her thirst by giving her living water, water that if she drinks will mean that she never thirsts again. And yet here Jesus hangs on the cross asking for a drink. The one who had offered living water is now thirsty. And this shows us that while he wasn't only human, he was fully human. What does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus was fully human? That he experienced joy and pain the way we do? What does it mean that he knew the pleasure of wine on his tongue or that he knew the pain of losing a friend? As we sit and ponder what it means that Christ was fully God and fully human, we are also invited to sit and ponder what it means that we are fully human. We are nearing the end of this 40-day period that is called Lent. Now, during this time, some of us gathered together to do daily readings and daily fasts. There was one day to fast from food, but all the other fasts were about going without things like criticism or intimidation or looking at our unhealthy spiritual attitudes and putting them aside. Now I have done Lenten fast before, choosing to abstain from things like coffee or chocolate. But somehow in this Lenten season of fasting from things that are not food, I became more aware of my hunger and more aware of my thirst. And this is the gift that Lent offers us. Lent allows us that space to sit with our deprivation and to grieve. In that space, we can admit that, yes, God is my shepherd, but I am still wanting. We can find ourselves thirsty. And it's not because we lack holiness, but it's because we are human. Before we can participate in the joy of Easter, before we can fully appreciate the power of the resurrection, we must spend time facing our own humanity. All of the disappointment and failures of our bodies, all of the ways we want to be strong and yet are weak, all of the ways we hunger and thirst in our souls, There is a podcast called On Being, and it's a podcast that looks at the big questions of life. And in one episode, the host is interviewing a man. His name is Brian Stevenson, and he's a lawyer who works with inmates on death row. Now, in this interview, he says this. I think sometimes when you are trying to do justice work, when you are trying to make a difference, when you're trying to change the world, the thing you need to do is get close enough to people who are falling down 
Get close enough to people who are suffering, close enough to people who are in pain, who've been discarded and disfavored, to get close enough to wrap your arms around them and affirm their humanity and their dignity. And when you do that, they will teach you something about what you need to learn about human dignity, but also what you can do to be a change agent. Spending this time, this Lenten season, in this place of thirst and hunger, will send us out with eyes that view the world through a lens of mercy and compassion. If I have known thirst, how can I let my neighbor go thirsty? If I have accepted my own humanity, how can I fail to see the humanity of those around me? Good Friday not only invites us to mourn Jesus in his full humanity, but to mourn others in their full humanity. For we live in a world where people fail to see the humanity of others. This is how people can justify war, killing, oppression, by looking at others as less than human. Those who killed Jesus saw him, yes, as less than God, but also as less than human. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, we read that it is almost time for the Sabbath to begin. An indication to the reader that the work is finished. Now, breaking the legs of the crucified was something that was done to speed up the death of the crucified one more quickly. And as the soldiers come to break Jesus' legs, they see they don't need to do this. He is already gone. So they don't break his legs, but instead they pierce his side and water and blood flow out. A final self-emptying of everything that he had to give. And he gave because of his great love for us. His love for us who are fully human. Acknowledging our humanity, then, it brings glory to God. St. Irenaeus said that the glory of God is women and men who are fully alive and deeply human. I think there is this misunderstanding we have that we should come out of this time of Lent as skinnier and shinier people, people who sport a glow that says we've been kissed by either the Son or the Holy Spirit. Instead, I see Lent as God's invitation to become more aware of our thirst, more aware of our hunger, more aware of ourselves, and as such, more aware of our need for God. It is only then that we can respond to that invitation that says, come, all you who are thirsty. God, we are thirsty. God, we are wanting. In this place of wanting, we wait for you.
Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 